good morning again. If you're not already there, please turn with me to Psalm 112. Thank you, Joe and worship team, for leading us in corporate worship today. So now we come to the word of the Lord. We've already read the text, and we won't do that again. But just the reason I'm preaching five of, I guess I'm calling my five, five of my favorite psalms in August to get us to September when we begin, Lord willing, our uh, our series on God's providence, our doctrinal study. This is a psalm that, especially the middle verses here, or toward the end, meant a whole lot to me at a very difficult time in ministry, in a time when it seemed like we got bad news every single day about something in a church where I previously served. And the Lord really used it uh, to instill a confidence in Him, to really grow my faith, to, to make me trust Him more. Of course, I still... Well, as we all do, battle anxiety and battle doubt sometimes. But God really used this psalm, and especially verses 6 through 8, and we're going we're to focus on that this morning. We're going to look at the whole thing. Uh, but uh, to, to make me much less fearful, but I think there's a fear that we need to have, and I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's pray, and we'll jump right into the text. God, this morning I pray simply that you would strengthen my voice. That as I battle uh, this, these allergies, you would take them away for the next few minutes and give me grace and strength to preach your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. And that God, whether weak, in weakness or in strength, your word would go forth in your strength and your power. And it would do that which you send it forth to do. And that is to build your church in us and through us that the gates of hell might not overcome it. And God, if there be one here today who does not know you, I pray you'd plant the seed of the gospel in them today. You'd water it with your Holy Spirit. You would draw them irresistibly and effectually to yourself unto salvation, that they might know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They might know the peace and, yes, the fear of God commended to us here in this text and live all out for your glory. God, we pray this on the strong name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, it's probably not helpful to point out, but I'm going to point it out anyway because this is where I'm going to start. No song this morning, okay, so no country song or classic hymn as the past couple weeks. But I think it almost goes without saying that we live in fearful times. Think about the last week, just the last week. The Taliban overran Afghanistan, the government there, striking terror in the hearts of thousands. And now that, that nation is under a tyrannical government. Christians there, we need to pray. We're going to have a special time of prayer at the end of our service for the Christians there. We need to be praying for them every day, just about every, every hour. And so they're living there under very different circumstances than they were before last week. Think about out west in our country here in the United States. Fires burn more than 700 square miles in just a few days, and they still continue to burn. They can't bring them under control. That part of the country is also under record drought. They've not had rainfall. Pray for rain. There are churches out there. I know sister churches of ours are out there praying for rain. Things we take for granted, they don't have. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. And of course, in Haiti this week, a place where my church back home and where I've done missionary work and missions work in the past, a massive earthquake has blasted that nation and hundreds are dead and hundreds are still missing. And the churches there in that area, they're not able to gather this morning. So pray for Haiti. Central Tennessee, catastrophic floods over just the last couple of days. People are out of their houses. 
people unable to worship this morning, unable to even be in their homes. And of course, I've not mentioned the pandemic. I don't like to mention the pandemic, but it seems that it's back. And we're again fighting over masks and mandates and all those things. And even having to hear those things brings a certain amount of fear in our hearts, does a certain amount of anxiety. So we live in very anxious times. And again, this is just the last few days of the news cycle. And you say, well, you know, I could have stayed home and watched CNN or Fox News or whatever you watch and gotten this instead of some discouraging sermon from this guy, right? So my purpose is not to discourage you, but my purpose is to encourage you. You've heard me use that old line from the Lord of the Rings movie about us not being fearful enough. Yes, we're afraid, but my fear is that we are not fearful enough. And you'll know what I mean by that, I think, by the time we're done. Because the holy grail in our culture today is safety. We want the same outcome for every person. We want everyone to be safe. And yet, if you've been alive for more than one day, you know that that is impossible in a fallen world. If you're a Christian, you read Genesis 3, you know that's impossible. Safety in a fallen world will always, always, always slip through our fingers. There is no safe place in this world except one place. And you know where we're going to go there a bit later. And so we medicate ourselves. We turn to technology. We turn to our phones and things like that. And then we think this will, this will give us a measure of joy and a measure of pleasure. And we'll escape. But alas, then we become afraid because we have what's now called the phenomenon called the fear of missing out. So we call out of fear, out of fear of missing out, or missing out on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, my phone enslaves me. And so that's not the answer, is it? Our technology makes us fearful. And so we turn to, th- turn to therapy. Lots of people going to therapy out there. That may be some of you. We turn to therapy, and therapy tells us, well, the most, your most fundamental problem is outside of you, and the most fundamental solution is inside of you. And beloved, that's not going to do anything for our anxiety. I'm messed up. That's why I'm here, right? I'll need help. And you tell me that the solution is inside of me. I just need to get in touch with that. When Scripture, of course, tells us precisely the opposite, the, the only help we can possibly count on is grace that comes from outside of us. And so we become more and more anxious. And of course, there's never perhaps in the history of mankind been less fear of God in a society than there is ours now. Blasphemy is everywhere. Look no farther than the, further than the drive to correct God's choice of our gender. We treat God as if he's some bumbling amateur who's messed up the most fundamental attribute of us. And we must correct him. Me. It's worshiping the creation rather than the creator. It's Romans 1, isn't it? We see Romans 3, 15 to 18 acted out every day in our society. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We live in a mocking culture that mocks God and mocks Christians and mocks anything that's serious about God that explains human origins and things like that. They just mock us, don't they? 
And we read scripture, we shouldn't expect anything less, right? So now you're saying this is not getting more encouraging. Just wait. Just wait. Don't leave me just yet. And don't let my voice distract you. And if you're visiting with us, it's never great in the first place, but it's really bad today. But here's the reality about our fear. What we fear is what we are most conscious of and allow to dictate our attitudes and actions. Think about how much of your day and how many of your decisions are driven by fear. Because whatever is writ large in our hearts, whatever is biggest in our hearts and dominates, will dominate our lives. So even the good things, the good gifts God gives us and allows us to have, like technology, become pitiless idols to us because they leave us without an anchor, no place to anchor ourselves because it's always moving, isn't it? You have the iPhone 12, well, the iPhone 13, I I hear that's coming out here in a few days, right? So I'm angry. I'm kind of upset that I have the iPhone 11 still, right? That makes me anxious. Everything's always changing. Whatever makes us most fearful, that is probably what we worship. Fear can be sinful because there's a kind of fear that doubts God and his power and his goodness. And that is a fear that tacitly says, I alone have the power to make this situation better. And as Christians, we often think that, don't we? We think, I need to speak into this. And of course, this is not a call to passivity. But we don't trust God. We trust ourselves more than we trust God. But it doesn't have to be that way for the follower of Jesus Christ. Because Scripture tells us two things. And this is one of the great paradoxes of Scripture. And I love the paradoxes in Scripture, as you well know by now. The Bible says, perhaps more than almost any other command, more prevalently, it says, fear not. And even hence that, that fear, certain kinds of fear, is sin, right? Because fear, within certain kinds of fear, there's sort of, a, 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 sort of an unspoken atheism, isn't there? But then it also says, fear the Lord. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So on one hand, the Bible says, fear not. And on the other hand, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I titled my sermon this morning, Profile of a God-Fearing Christian. What I almost titled it was, The Fear of God, uh, the, the, the Death of Fear and the Fear of God, playing on John Owen's Death of Death. But I thought, not everyone knows that book. But if we have the right kind of fear, it will put to flight our fears. That's what I hope we'll see in this text this morning. Because I want to provide an antidote to all this discouraging confusion and fear and anxiety. Because we alone have it in Scripture. We have, in one instance, right here in this text this morning. So here's what I want to argue this morning from this text. And this is a thesis. I'm borrowing this from Michael Reeves. in a book on the fear of God. And it's wonderful. And I'll put it out there as my next pastoral recommendation next week. In transforming us, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free from fear And it also gives us fear. Say what? So it liberates us from fear on the one hand, and on the other hand, it it instills fear in us. You're not buying it so far. I don't get it. You're going to get it. It frees us from our crippling fears of this world, and the gospel gives us a most delightful, happy fear, which is the fear of God. Now, what does the fear of God mean? Is that being fear, fearful of an angry dad? Well, no. It's a, a holy reverence we have of God. It's not at all what we think of when we tend to think of fear. That's a 
holy reverence, I would even argue a delight in God. Now, we, this uh, Psalm 112, actually, we have to go back and get a little bit of context in verse 10 of, of, uh, of Psalm 111. Because these two go together. They both begin with praise the Lord. So they go together. Uh, these, these psalms do. So I'm only going to preach on one, but they go together. So verse 10 of chapter, of, uh, ver- of chapter 111 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? What? Wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the Bible says, fear not. And then it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to know how to be wise? Well, fear the Lord. That's where we start. And then in chapter, in, on into chapter 12, 112, I'm sorry, he says, all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Then chapter 112, our text today, begins with praise the Lord. And this is says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. Who greatly delights in his commandments. So blessed is the man who fears the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And blessed is the man or the woman. It's not just for men. This is I mean, the universe. I want to use he all the three. I mean all of us. Okay, it's a universal, like the universal uh, he. I mean that. I mean men and women, he and she. Blessed is the man or the woman who fears the Lord. Wow. So we want to fear not, but also fear the Lord. In such a way that the fear of God controls our fears and reigns in our anxieties. So that we look at the news cycle over the last week and we're able to laugh. I don't mean laugh as in, isn't that funny that that happened to those people? But we just say, I know the one who holds the future. I know the one who's sovereign over all those things. I know the one who not one molecule or atom or subatomic particle escapes his, not just his notice, but his control. And not just his control, but his ordaining ordination before the foundation of the world. That God. That's a God we can fear. That's a God we can reverence. That, he alone is our, our hiding place. He alone is our anchor. Psalm 111 focuses on God. And Psalm 112 focuses on God's people. Excuse me, I may have to do this several times. Psalm 112 is an acrostic. It means if you were to count the lines, you would see that in both of these poems, they're identical in length and word count and everything else, which is a really, really good way to communicate. But you really don't need to know that to understand the passage, right? If you don't know what an acrostic is, look, it'll explain it in the notes at the bottom of your, there's probably a little a number if you have the ESV up there, I think number six. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who, who greatly delights in his commandments. That's where he goes on in verse one. You will be like what you worship. I think that's another way of saying what I'm trying to say this morning, not very well, mind you, but you will be like whatever it is you worship. If you truly love God and worship God, you will be like him. James Montgomery Boyce said, the relationship of God to the godly person is like the relationship of the sun to the moon. The sun shines by its own glorious light. The moon does not, but still it shines, and the way it shines is by reflecting the light coming to it from the sun. If you are devoutly looking to God as you live your life, something of the glory of God will be seen in you and will be reflected from you to others. If nothing of God is reflected in you, it is a proof that you do not know him. 
is because you are not truly a Christian. And so we were made the image of God, we're fallen, but God is restoring that. That's what he does in salvation, right? And so if you, you'll be like the moon, you will reflect something of God, of the Son, the S-U-N, and of course the S-O-N, the Son of God, your Savior, if you are in him. And so that's what these attributes, that's what he's describing here, the psalmist. He's describing someone who reflects God because he fears God. And this is the outcome of their lives. And I have seven things I want to say that characterizes the man or the woman who fears the Lord. <clears throat> he begins to praise the Lord. That's always the place to begin with praise, with doxology, right? Good theology always leads to doxology. Here's the first characteristic. He delights in God's commands, which is another way of saying he delights in God's word. And hopefully this will, this will remind you of Psalm 1 that we looked at a few weeks ago. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, the psalmist says there, of the man of God, the man who fears God. He meditates on God's world, uh, God's, God's law, God's word, day and night. And of course, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and his leaves does not wither, and all he does is prospers. And we said that's the kind of person we want to be in God's word, right? That's the, the outcome of a godly life, of a life given to studying and meditating on and intaking the word of God and living out the word of God. I mean, this really defines practically what it means to fear the Lord. Because if you say, well, I really fear God, and then you say, I don't know anything about his word, I don't really care about it, I don't need to read the Bible, then that tells me that you really don't fear God because you really don't know God. How do we know God? Well, God has told us about himself, hasn't he, in his special revelation, and so we know about him because he's given us his word. And the man who fears God, or the woman who fears God, they delight in God's commandments, Spurgeon said, and I love Spurgeon, and I'm going to quote him a few times in here because I love, the, the, uh, I love his commentary on this. Holiness is his happiness, speaking of the, of the man, or of course the woman, who fears God. Holiness is his happiness. Devotion is his delight. <clears throat> and truth is his treasure. We have known hypocrites to rejoice in doctrines, but never in commandments. So the person who fears the Lord will obey his law, not out of a slavish fear of punishment, but out of a love and a respect and a reverence for God the Father. You know how it is, if you love and respect your parents, isn't it true that you are far more apt to obey them if you love them and respect them? I have a saying in my home when I talk to my children, we discipline. Sometimes it's why I'm not, maybe I'm rough sometimes, but as to why I'm not rougher, I say it's, it's usually better to be respected than feared, Right? And that's what this fear of God means. We love God, we delight in Him, and we want to please Him. Just like you want to please your parents. If you love them, you, you delight in them. <laughs> and some, of the, some of our teenagers are saying, delight in our parents? Are you kidding me? You may someday. <laughs> but you want, to, you want to obey them, right? You, you, and, and this is what it is with the person who fears God. You obey them not out of some kind of slavish fear, but cheerfully. You will obey God, not because it's your duty, but because it's your delight. We've tried to underscore that word a lot in this study, haven't we? Not just a duty to obey God. Yes, we are duty-bound, but do we delight in the law of the Lord and delight in obeying the law of the Lord? One of my, one of my weekly prayers every Lord's Day is, God forbid that I ever traffic in unlived truth. God, help this text to, to come to bear on my conscience and my life and give me grace to live it out 
Lest, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. As Paul put it to the Corinthians. So his, he delights in God's word. Secondly, the second attribute, verse 2. He blesses the next generation. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. <clears throat> Parents, your faithfulness to the Lord will be a blessing to your children, even if it doesn't look like it now. now. Of course, this doesn't guarantee they're going to walk with the Lord. That's not an ironclad guarantee. It doesn't mean we're going to start baptizing babies. We are Christ Fellowship Baptist Church after all, right? We're going to baptize infants. But what this means is that when you fear God, and your kids know that you are passionate about God, and you fear God, and you're not living a life filled of anxiety, wringing your hands about what's going to happen next, but you're trusting God, then they're going to be intrigued at least by the God whom you love, or at least they should, as you live compelling lives before them. You put them in... Great advantages in putting them in what I want to call the realm of grace. Or in the, no, it doesn't save them to be, I tell my kids all the time, my faith will not save you. I condemn you because you're in the realm of grace. And that's what it does. It puts them in the realm of grace. I hear the word. I come to church. I hear the preaching of the word. And so it puts them in the realm of grace. There's a real sense in which you can thank my parents, Charlie and Laverne Robinson, if you're glad I'm here you can really thank them because it all started with them. Thankfully, mercifully, I had wonderful parents. I know not a lot of you can say that. You've shared that with me, and it's, that's, that's heartbreaking. But I had godly parents who loved God. They, they feared the Lord. They loved his word. They took me and my brothers to church. And I'm convinced, even though I had a season of wandering, that I'm here today because it started right there. Flannel graph. Flannel graph stories in my church about you know Old Testament, Old Testament, uh, Old Testament stories. And my parents said, "Yeah, these are true. This is the Word of God." And it bore fruit in my life. Maybe a little bit later, but it bore fruit. So, parents, don't be hesitant to live out your faith and teach the, your faith in the home. In fact, dads, I would argue you need to be leading your family in that. We want you to do that in this church to lead them because. You will be a blessing to the next generation, even if it bears fruit much later. Nothing I want to see more than my four children walking with the Lord. I pray for that every single day. And so they're getting prayed for every day, right? And you're praying for your children every day. It's like Augustine and his mother Monica, one of my favorite mothers in church history. She would not leave him alone until he turned from his wickedness and turned to Christ. She, she, he moved all over North Africa trying to get away from his mother, his meddling mother, and she followed him and prayed for him, and God got him. The hound of heaven found him, got him, and brought him back, and one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. Pray for your children because your, your, your fear of God blesses the next generation. Thirdly, a man or a woman who fears God, man who fears God, he is wealthy in enduring righteousness, I'm going to call. Verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house. You think, oh boy, I'm going to be wealthy. I'm going to be a billionaire. I'm going to follow Jesus. Money's going to come to me. And his righteousness endures forever. You have to read those together. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. I agree with Spurgeon and Calvin, and far be it for me to disagree with them, but I do on some issues. I think this should be taken spiritually. Why do you say that? 
looks literal. Well, no, I think you take it spiritually because of what the second part of the, what it says about our uh, righteousness enduring forever. And it says it again in verse 9. Because following Jesus is not the pathway to becoming a billionaire. If that were true, the whole world would go after Jesus, right? <clears throat> it is small wonder that prosperity gospel churches have thousands and thousands and thousands of members. I mean, if you thought you could win the lottery by coming to Christ Fellowship Baptist Church, I don't think we'd have just this few people here this morning. But I can't guarantee you to win the lottery, okay? <laughs> that, that's, not, that's not what we do here. But it's still the Bible says riches, wealth, and riches are in his house. Although what Spurgeon said, he said, what wealth can equal God's love? You can't buy God's love, can you? You can't purchase it. You can't go to Kroger and say, I want, you know, 16 ounces of God's love, of water. Chips and 16 ounces of God's love. No, money won't buy that, will it? Spurgeon's right. I love that. He says, what riches can rival a contented heart? Some of the most discontented people I've ever met have been wealthy people. People are always worried about losing their money, aren't they? I always want just a little bit more, just a little more. That'll, that'll make me content. That'll satisfy me. That'll be just enough. And I know from my own heart that that's true. I'm not sure I think I could ever have enough money. I mean, I really think that sometimes. And sometimes I even fall into thinking if I were only a millionaire, then I would be totally content in Christ. But I wouldn't. Only Christ brings contentment. We've been studying contentment in our small groups. That's a convicting study, isn't it? Because we're not, we're naturally discontented. We're turned in on ourselves. What riches can rival a contented heart? Spurgeon asks, he says, it matters nothing if the roof is thatched and the floor is stone cold. <clears throat> For the heart that is cheered with the favor of heaven is rich. Often when gold comes in, the gospel goes out. Mm. I'd rather have Jesus or all the gold in California. Jesus, I hope you have too. They say, well, is it a sin? To be wealthy? Well, no, no. There are many Christians who, praise God, are wealthy and they help the church. We have uh, all kinds of different uh, places in this church of people with, with them. We have poor seminary students, only to people who God has blessed, and we're thankful for that. Calvin said, God sometimes bestows his bounty more profusely and at other times more sparingly upon his children according to what he, as he sees it, be most for their good. So God gives us things for our good and we need it. And I mean, I know that my bank account tends to fluctuate. Yours probably does too. And one of my elders in a previous place I served said, Jeff, if you don't have it, then you don't need it. God knows you don't need it. Because I like to save. I'm a saving person. I love a savings account. Man, I like a fat savings account. It's never fat enough for me. But you, some of you probably get this and some of the rest of you are like, I don't know, what are you saving? What is that? But he would always say, you know, if you don't have it, God knows you don't need it. He's not giving it to you. And that's true, isn't it? And I need to hear that. But we're wealthy in righteousness. I mean, sometimes the temptation of wealth can work as a sanctifying influence in the heart of the believer because it tests us and tells us who we really are. Because when the account starts to get low, are we still trusting God or are we freaking out? It can be a sanctifying part of our lives. I mean, and it should be, as a matter of fact. Remember the parable of the sower? He said he, he was tempted by... By wealth, one of the soil, one of the hearts is tempted by wealth. They're tempted to be drawn away because it, it, can, it can buy anything, right? Money, you think you can buy anything. It has divine attributes in some sense. 
I don't think he means wealthy in righteousness. I mean, earthly wealth may fade, but look at what the psalmist says here in verse part of, 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 of second part of verse 3. His righteousness endures forever. And he repeats this in verse 9. And it endures because why? Well, it comes from God. If you're in Christ, you have a righteousness, an alien righteousness outside of yourself that has been given to you, that's been deposited into your account. And you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ through his righteousness, one through a sinless life. He kept the law perfectly for you. You're justified by faith. So you have a perfect righteousness, what I'm calling here an enduring righteousness. You're united to Christ and nothing can separate you from that union. Glory, hallelujah. Isn't that good news? Drive away our anxiety and fear, shouldn't it? That we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection and nothing can snatch us out of his hands. We have true wealth laid up in heaven where nothing can get it. Nothing can separate us from him. And the Lord maintains his righteousness, your righteousness by his grace. That's why we're here. The churches of uh, what we sometimes call the ordinary means of grace. We come to church and we hear the preaching and we sing the praise, praises of God and we go to Sunday school and we do outreach and participate in a small group and it's a means of grace. It, it, it increases our faith. It increases our righteousness, our ability to live out God's word. That's what the ordinary means of grace are for, to do extraordinary things in, in our ordinary lives. And your righteousness endures forever. So you're rich in, in enduring righteousness, fourthly. The man who fears God walks in the light and is gracious, merciful, and righteous. I love this phrase, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Well, that's been encouraging to me when I've been in some dark places. When, when the sun has gone down in my life, I've looked at this and said, the light, the light will dawn. And the light has dawned. The light of Christ has already risen in my heart and in your heart. The Bible never says a Christian will have only days of sunshine. Now, we live in a fallen world too, just like ungodly people do, just like unbelievers. And we will have many days of darkness and sickness and, and poverty and depression. But we have the Lord, and he will always see us through it. Spurgeon said, your wealth may take wings and fly away. And even his righteousness may be cruelly suspected by others. They may think you're just self-righteous. Clouds may lower around a righteous man, but his gloom will not last forever. For the Lord will bring light in due season. As surely as a good person's sun goes down, it will rise again. If darkness is caused by depression, and Spurgeon wrestled mightily, mightily with depression, more than almost any other figure except maybe John Bunyan and, and Luther in church history, he said the Holy Spirit will give comfort. He knows this by experience. And I hope you do too. I, I certainly do. If there's a financial loss or personal bereavement, Spurgeon goes on, Christ's presence will give solace. If there's cruelty and malignity, that's sin against you, the Lord's sympathy will give support. It is as ordinary for the righteous to be comforted as it is for the day to dawn. Wait for the light and it will surely come. If our Heavenly Father in our last hours puts us to bed in the dark, it will be morning when we awake. When you draw your last breath, if you're in Christ, then you will open your eyes in the light. You'll go to sleep in the darkness. The worst thing that can befall you today from a human standpoint is death, and you will wake up in the light. Money can't buy that, can it? Can it together? Glorious. And so you walk in the light. If you're a God-fearing person, if you fear him, you walk in the light. And adversity, which will come, 
in the middle of the adversity. I think that's what's in, in view here. The godly Christian, the God-fearer, reflects the attributes of the Lord. He is gracious. Jesus is full of grace and truth, isn't he? You're still able to be gracious and not cranky all the time. Merciful. You look at other people and you show them mercy as you've been shown mercy. You're not just taking out your anger on them because it's not going well for you. And you're going to just let them know about it. If you're not having a good day, then they're not going to have a good day either. No, you're able to still be merciful because you have received infinite mercy. And you'll continue to be righteous. You won't walk away from the Lord and say, well, this Christian thing, Christianity thing just hasn't worked too well for me. I've heard that before. I've, I've had to minister into that one. Had a man tell me that one time. He had a foot ailment. And some prosperity person had come to him and said, well, claim it and it'll be done. And, well, of course, naturally, he got up and he fell down. So he came to me and he said, I've prayed about this. and I had some people tell me if I just claimed it, since I'm a Christian, I'll be healed. And of course, Scripture claims no such, makes no such promise. And he said, this Christian thing may work for some people, but it doesn't for me. My theology is so important, isn't it? It's based on a faulty foundation. It wasn't the God of the Bible. He'd been made, given some promises by a, a maybe well-meaning, perhaps well-meaning, no doubt well-meaning, but misguided person. In adversity, you can reflect these, 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 character, these attributes of God when the affliction is worse, at its worst. You won't be self-absorbed, but you'll remain compassionate toward others. Fifthly, man of fear has gone as generous and fair in his dealings. He's generous in helping those in need and is a person of integrity because he's been helped. He knows what it's like. She knows what it's like to be helped by God and is willing and able to help others. Generous, always fair in their dealings. It's a person, I like to say, in whom there is no guile. I have a few friends. I'm really blessed to have a handful of friends, and you know some people like this. There's just no guile in them. They're just genuine. They love the Lord, and they're very earnest. Earnestness has fallen on hard times. We live in a smart, elegant culture in which, it, you know, the, you zing everybody, and anyone, the earnest person is always mocked and made fun of. I love earnest people. Earnest, and there's no guile in them. You know these people. They're honorable. Their lives are compelling because they're so easy to deal with no matter what the situation. You come to them and things are going wrong all around them and they're still kind to you and they love you. Their godliness, they make godliness look attractive. I grew up with some people like this. People the world will never know. I think of a man named Neil Eford who went on to be the Lord about 20 years ago and a man named Elmer Thompson, a, my Sunday school teacher and I was a little boy. They were kind. They were, there's no guile in these men. In other words, I could just name, name after name people you will never hear of, and some you have heard of. Just, there's no guile in them. Their lives are just so compelling, because no matter what's going on in their lives, they, they deal with you in love every single time, because their, 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 uh, their days and their nights and their lives are anchored in something else. They're anchored in heaven. There's nothing here they're worried about losing. Sixth. My main point. A person who fears God stands firm when bad news comes or when affliction arises. And this is why I wanted, I almost titled this The Death of the Fear of God in the Fear of God. I almost want to title it because I think fearing God is what kills fear. Look at verses six through eight. This was of such comfort to me years ago, and it remains this way. I go to this, I go to this verse, all, these verses all the time for comfort. It says, for the righteous will never be moved. This is the God fear. The righteous will never be moved. This is a promise. 
the world is moving around you. I just, the news cycle the last week, is the world moving around us? You better believe it is. Where is it going? Well, we know where it's going, don't we? And that's good for us. Not so good for the world. Not for, so good for those who don't fear God. Who, Romans 3 is true, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Not so good for them. But the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Life is so compelling. He's gonna, you're gonna, they're going to be talking about him in, in ages to come because of his fearlessness, because he feared God and knew his soul was anchored, his life was anchored in God, in Christ. And I love seven. He is not afraid of bad news. For many years, I was a news journalist. I was a news reporter. and I, I always felt like my job was to be a harbinger of bad news. That should have been my title, right? Should have been bad news reporter. Because <laughs> that, if it bleeds, it leads. That's what was our phrase in the newsroom. We're fear mongers. I think I was a fear monger at one point. I got paid to do that. It's it's very sad, isn't it? But for the man of God, he doesn't have to fear bad news. I love the way the King James, the old King James says, he's not afraid of evil tidings. I love that. We don't speak that way, but isn't that beautiful? He's not afraid of evil tidings comes in and goes out, and sometimes it washes you away, right? He's not afraid of evil tidings, of evil news of that. Solomon said, the righteous, unlike unbelievers who tremble at every, even the slightest rumor, calmly and peacefully confides in God's paternal care amid all evil tidings which may reach them. You're going to suffer. You live in this news cycle, right? But you don't have to be afraid because God is your Father, you don't have to be afraid of bad news. My family will tell you, I don't like to be surprised, not usually. Sometimes my phone will ring, you know, we got cell phones, we're instantly available, and I'll think, I'm not going to like this. <laughs> this may be bad news, because bad news is always just a phone call or a text away, isn't it? I mean, really bad news, and thankfully I've never gotten really, really, really bad news, usually. It's usually not that bad, it's usually nothing. Sometimes my heart will think, hmm. But I shouldn't be afraid of bad news. It says his heart is firm trusting the Lord. That's why. Why can your heart be firm? How can you not be afraid of bad news? Is it because you are the John Wayne of evangelical Christianity? That you're tough and you aren't afraid of anything that's frightening? Fearful and your fear is rightly placed. It's placed in the God of the universe, the sovereign creator of the universe. You fear him, you delight in him, and your heart is firm. He's proven himself throughout life, throughout Scripture, in the life of Israel, in the life of the church, and in your individual lives, he's proven himself trustworthy. You can trust him. I mean, you may be going through things today. You've come here with a heavy burden on your back. No doubt some of you have. I know I've felt very burdened lately about a number of things in my life, and some of them personal, some of them just what I've read in the first part of the, or what I uh, shared in the first part of the sermon. But I trust the Lord. We have him. We have this great God. We need not fear. We need not dread bad news. I mean, think of the evil tidings that may come into your life from just one phone call. It could be the death of, the parent, of a parent. Three years ago at 6.30 in the morning, I got that phone call. Evil tidings. It was bad news. I knew it was coming. It didn't surprise me, thankfully. Parent. Death one of your children. Kids are out in their cars. My kids will tell you this. I, I overprotect them. I call them and say, are you okay? I heard a siren near my house. I do this all the time. 
because I don't want that phone call. The death of a dear friend. Tess came back and the doctor wants to meet with you. Had that phone call, haven't you? The boss calls you in his office. We're in a pandemic and we're downsizing. You don't have to fear. Through your tears, you can say, praise be to God. Through your tears, I mean, that doesn't mean we don't weep and we don't suffer. We certainly do. In a car wreck and a family member has not survived. Or because of you're in Christ and because you have him, you can say out of the deepest pain that God is good. He is enough. He will take care of us. You can say that even in the middle of your pain. You're scared, but you have a comforter that hour for the follower of Jesus Christ, he will be enough. That is why the psalmist is here saying the best, perhaps the best illustration of this in all of history is Job. Job lost his family, his children. He lost all of his money. He lost all of his livestock, which in the ancient Near East was wealth. He lost his wife, she said, just curse God and die. And what was his response? Well, hallelujah, let's have lunch. Job hurt. Job hurt. He bled internally. But he said, not in spite of his suffering, but out of his suffering, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because he was not afraid of bad news. He was not afraid of evil tidings. Because he knew where his help came from. He knew where his anchor was. And later when his wife turned on him and invited him to curse God and die, what did he say? He said, shall we receive good from the hand of God and not adversity? And the Hebrew word literally means evil. And of course, God's not the author of evil, but we don't have time to go into that. I think we know that here. Shall we receive good at the hand of God and not adversity? Because we know that God is either sovereign over at all or he's not sovereign at all. He's not God at all. Right? And we have him. And we will never be moved. We have this promise. You'll be remembered forever, maybe not on this earth, but in eternity. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It will not be erased. Not afraid of bad news. Your heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. That's the important thing. You're trusting in him. Are you trusting him today? Or when just the smallest, slightest thing threatens you, do you freak out? Christians, we should not. But we all do it, don't we? We all worry. The antidote right here, the news cycle, pff, that's nothing to God. Afghanistan, God's on the throne there. Taliban, they think they're in charge. <laughs> Babylon thought so too. In the Old Testament, what happened to Babylon? Well, they're no longer with us. Taliban, you can just be haughty for so long. God's got this, right? And yes, there are atrocities and we want justice. God will God will balance the scales. It's all going to be, all those bad things are going to be undone. Proverbs 31 woman, I love this. 21, verse 21. It says, she, she stre- strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. She laughs at the future. Why does she laugh at the future? Because God has the future. She can say with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. She can say that. And we can too. I mean, no wonder ungodly people are anxious. If I, if I weren't a Christian, I don't think I could live in this world. 
I'd have a nervous breakdown like a long time ago. <laughs> Wouldn't you? When evil tidings come, where is their shelter? To whom or to what can they look for comfort and peace and rescue? Nothing. Nothing. They have nothing. They have an answer for the Taliban, for the fires out west, for COVID-19? No. They've got nothing. Nothing at all. Calvin said, no wonder the rustling of a falling leaf troubles and alarms them. Just the rustling of a leaf. Scare them. afraid of bad news, you will never be moved. You should not fear. Seventh attribute of a God-fearing person. He is a subject of scorn, the scorn of the wicked. Verse 10. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm so sorry. The wicked man sees it, sees the godly man, and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. The world will never love a truly God-fearing person. They're not going to love you. You're not going to be, you're not going to win friends and influence people. You're not going to be the most popular person if you work in a secular environment. You will not. Jesus said in John 15, 18 and 19, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were all the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, you fear God. You answer to him. You know what the psalmist says here is true. You will not be afraid. You you will trust in the Lord, Jesus said, because you're not of the world. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Sometimes I think as, as Christians, we want to get too cozy with the world. We want them to love us and respect us, and we're, very, we're so careful about what we say about our Christian faith, we really don't seem like Christians at all. The way we talk about sin, sin that's celebrated, we talk about it in such careful tones, almost hallowed tones, we almost make it a special category of sin. When the Bible says God hates sin and says he's angry with the wicked every day, you won't find that on evangelism tracks, will you? And yet that's what your neighbor's facing. It's why they need Jesus and why you must share this Christ with them. They're going to scorn you. They're going, to, they're going to hate you. Don't expect anything else, but love them and share the gospel with them. That's the answer, isn't it? We can stop courting the world's esteem because it will never accept us because of the one whom we fear. Never. Never, never, never. Everyone fears something. Every one of us, if we're honest, we fear something, don't we? What we fear is what we are most conscious of and allow to dictate our attitudes and actions. I think that's the main thing I want us to take home from this. It was verses 6 to 8. And I love the whole, the whole psalm. I almost did the sermon just on verses 6 to 8. The fear of God and the fear of man, they can't live together in the same heart. They are mutually exclusive. And if God is foremost in our minds and hearts and we factor him into all the situations that surround us, then we will know blessedness indeed. All the blessedness that he outlines here. We will know peace that the world can never Never, never understand. And your life will be compelling and they will want to know why. They will ask you for the reason, for the hope that's found in you. Just as 1 Peter 3.15 promises. Be ready. 
We must learn to live as if the one we cannot see with our physical eyes is more real than the, all that we see around us. Just like those latter chapters of Hebrews we just looked at a few weeks ago. We are waiting for a kingdom that cannot be shaken, but a kingdom we cannot see. And that kingdom is more real than a kingdom we can see. It's a kingdom that's shaking. Because that kingdom cannot be shaken. Close with this. You think one more time with me. I know we're the long end of the sermon, but think about this. What is this psalm? All these attributes. What is it but a beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ? Who he is. In his human nature, the Son of God fears the Lord and delights in his commandments. So we need to be like Christ. That's the bottom line here, right? In fearing God, we'll be like Christ. Jesus is gracious and compassionate and righteous. He disperses his riches to poor sinners like us. We have all these riches in him. And we've done nothing to merit them. And the wicked will rage that they will, and they will perish under his wrath. Evil tidings come, beloved. This, this is the Lord you have. And this is the Lord you need. This is the Savior whose grace and strength can make you say, I am not afraid of bad news. He is my Lord. He is my anchor. He is my rock. He is my redeemer. I cannot be moved. Therefore, I will not fear. I will fear him and nothing else. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, I will trust him who loved me and gave himself up for me. May God give us that rock-ribbed trust that comes out of the fear of him. Father, we praise you and worship you today. And we thank you that we have you in our time of need. Though the mountains may be moved into the heart of the sea, still you will not be moved. I pray that we would delight in you and delight in fearing you, that we would not fear this world, but fear God today. Every person within this hearing, there will be one here today that, Lord, does not know you, and they, they're just ready to run for cover at every moment, but, God, they would run to you. they run to the old rugged cross where they might find life indeed, where they might be liberated from fear, knowing that eternity is settled. They can live lives that, that prize Christ above all, not safety, knowing it will never come in this world. They will prize being safe in the arms of Jesus. Pray this in his strong name. Amen.